So I found the right folks and we did a partnership with Uber in Sao Paulo and we launched a helicopter network with Uber for like a 30 day stint. And the demand was insane. Like the demand was like through the roof and we're like, okay, maybe this is really a thing. And so we took it back and Airbus is like, yeah, you know, we're really committed to trying this out. Let's go build a business. And we, our timing was insane. So we launched Boom, we incorporated it kind of in the fall of 2016. And right at that moment, Uber put out the Uber Elevate memo, which launched an entire industry, right? It really kind of turbocharged the electric VTOL industry and space, this urban air, air transportation space. The Pathfinder podcast is presented to you by Ansarado. Ansarado is the modern deal and virtual data room technology designed to make M&A, capital raising, divestments, restructures, and IPOs as simple as possible. Since 2005, Ansarado has been trusted in over 24,000 transactions and powered over $1 trillion worth of deals. Ansarado is a secure space that includes workflow tools, AI-powered data rooms, built-in question and answer and integration frameworks. It's the data room trusted by modern dealmakers. You can start for free today at Ansarada.com. You know I like a winning team, so say it with me, Ansarada.com for your next winning outcome. Welcome to The Pathfinders, the modern dealmaker series brought to you by Ansarada. Now here's your host, Dahani Jones. Welcome back, everybody, to The Pathfinders presented by Ansarada. I'm your host, former NFL player, investor, and entrepreneur, Dahani Jones. Today, I'm joined by the CEO of Aero Technologies, Uma Subramanian. Prior to joining Aero, Uma was a pioneer in urban air mobility space as the founding CEO of Voom Flights, an Airbus company, which built an urban air mobility network. Uma joins me today to talk all about the future of air mobility, her belief that society is on its way to unlocking the urban sky, and her journey building a premium aviation brand. Oma, what's going on? What is up, Dahani? Thank you for having me on your podcast today. See, I had to bring this energy, had to bring this funk, this fire, because, you know, we have this relationship going all the way back to the University of Michigan. And now I'm on this side of the screen. You're on that side of the screen. And now you're beholding to all like the questions that I have for like your life, how you've been, the businesses that you're you've built and the one that you're building and, you know. The, the joys of motherhood. I mean, it's it's amazing all the great things that you've done. We have come a long way. I think back when I was interviewing you, I had a portable Marantz in a bag that I would carry around, and there was no screens, and so it was a it was a it was sort of a hidden conversation, and then I could like play it black and then write stories about it. So we've come <laughs> a long way. Now this is all real time. It's all high tech. It's very exciting. It's the fact that that technology, you know, as much as we we love it, you know, we need it because it ultimately does bring people closer together. And in, in the same way, you know, you've your education and your track has put you in some amazing places, which has brought us back together because you know how much I love aviation, right? You know, I love being up in the air, looking at the sky. And now to know that you're a part of this ecosystem, this world, I just can't wait to spend more time. But for all those that are out there that are listening right now to the Pathfinders, you know, I, I'm curious as I've mentioned before, you've had this exciting career history within the world of aviation and aerospace, you know, from NASA to Voom. Like what initially inspired your love of flight? Yeah, so that's a great question. So since childhood, I've loved three things, airplanes and space, fast cars and sports. My dad and I were 
season ticket holders, Michigan football, since I was like a middle schooler. And my love of aviation dates back to the fact that I went to space camp when I was nine, back when it was like in Huntsville. And, you know, you had, you know, I went there too, right? No, I didn't know you went to space camp. Yeah, I went to space camp. In Huntsville? I went, did, do you still have your suit? I never got one, but I do have my t-shirt, my original like space camp team Mercury t-shirt. So I went when I was nine and then I went back kind of three more times after that. So when I went to the University of Michigan, I was like hell bent on going back to space. So I studied aerospace engineering, but then I had this like side love. Like I love kind of the technical side of things like airplanes and space travel, but I have this like also kind of soft brain side of my, of me, which is kind of, kind of similar to you. You love taking pictures of stuff and you like playing sports. And I had a lot of interest. And so I loved kind of writing. And so I joined the daily and I you know used to cover sports. And when I graduated from college, there was a real debate. I was like, do I go and work on aerospace stuff or do I take a job? It was actually doing the agate page for the Detroit Free Press. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I am. <laughs> and the, the salary differential is pretty material too. <laughs> I was like, I could slog my way through, you know, updating sports stats or I could go work on the F-18, which was my first job out of college. What was that experience like? That was really interesting. It was actually when I learned that I... Like hardcore engineering is not really for me. I love to think about kind of like the application of really cool airplanes and really cool airplane technology. But I was doing structural engineering on the F fuselage of the F-18 as my first job out of Michigan. And I was like, this is slow. <laughs> and, and, and it's cool. It's a fighter jet, right? It was the F-18 Super Hornet. But I quite quickly realized like I went into aerospace because I love space. Mm. And so I was working on that program, the F-18 program. And I managed to finagle my way onto the space program, which was, I was working at a company called Northrop Grumman and we were bidding for the replacement for the shuttle. So this was the early two thousands and my timing was amazing. I got onto the space program. So I graduated from Michigan in December, 2001. I took a few months, worked in, worked in Vail, then joined Northrop Grumman on the F-18 program in April, 2002. And then I worked on that program for about 18 months and in November 2003, I finagled my way onto the space program. And my timing was insane because that had been the year that the Space Shuttle Columbia had gone down and the U.S. was like radically rethinking its purpose in space. And so in January 2004, President Bush at the time came out and said the U.S. is going back to the moon and going to Mars. And at the time, we had said to the station in 2012 with this program, to the moon in 2016 and to mm. Mars in 2020, it is now 2022, and that program that I was working on <laughs> became Artemis. So the Orion spacecraft wow. is what we worked on. And it was supposed to launch, like, hopefully now that all the hurricanes have passed, hopefully it'll launch in October. But that program is finally, finally launching today, <laughs> which is kind of awesome. It's like 20 years later, you're like, God, this vehicle that we were actually working on with the same, kind of largely the same configuration is, is like finally launching. But it was amazing. I was 24, and I had this job, and we were... It was awesome. It was like the early days of the space program. Northrop teamed with Boeing and we were we were devising like mission design, like how do you get to the moon? How do you get to the Mars? What do you do when you get there? What's the optimal crew mix to send to space? Do you send six men or six women? And you send married couples, right? It was so cool. I had this job that I like, I would have paid that money to let me work on that job. So I got really spoiled because when you have that kind of experience early in your career, you're like really mm. motivated to continue to find it. Mm -hmm. And so- I was about two years into that program when I realized I had this like profound 
realization, which was like the program and the way we were thinking about paying for it was not sustainable. It was no longer the 1960s when space was a national priority and where there was a lot of public will to pay for the program. So I was like, all right, I am going to go to business school and I'm going to find a way to sort of sell space and make it a national priority. This was kind of five years before Elon made space cool again. So Elon is kind of like reinvigorated American desire to go to space. Mm-hmm. But this was kind of, this was 2005, 2006. And so I applied to business school. I am the kind of person that doesn't like a lot of choice. So I only applied to one college, one business school. I ended up going to Harvard, one first job. I'm like very kind of, I just like to have like a choice <laughs> and then and then go down one that podcast. Path. So I applied to Harvard. One podcast, one, one conversation. One podcast, one conversation. <laughs> only with you. <laughs> and so... And so I uh, I applied to business school in the summer of 2006 and I got in and I wasn't going to go because we were like, we were bidding this program. I was like, I have this job that I love. And my boss is like, if you don't go, I'm going to fire you and you're going to go. Mm. <laughs> so it was lucky that he did because that program ended up getting awarded a Lockheed for a host of interesting reasons, but it was awarded a Lockheed. And so the program I was on got shut down and I would have been doing something else, probably the James Webb Space Telescope, which also launched last year. And so it was it was interesting. So I went to business school in 2006 and that was a truly kind of transformative period because it opened my mind to what the possibilities are out there, right? Like I, it radically kind of changed the trajectory of my life in terms of like being able to see that there's just so much more than aerospace. I'd only ever known aerospace and sports writing. And that was it. <laughs> and then I had made sort of a binary choice and I had gone down this aerospace path. But then I went to business school and I saw like what really kind of moves markets and, and moves the needle. And so, yeah, but I've never lost this like love of space every time I, mm-hmm. or aviation or aerospace uh, in general. So I keep coming back to it. I can hear it as you're talking about it. Like you're, you're reminiscing and you're playing your life back in some of the choices, in my opinion, as you've made them along the way. And I think it's it's important, like the people that you meet along the way that kind of see the direction that you're trying to go, you also identify the places that you want to go and them kind of helping you. I mean, when you first stepped on to Harvard's campus, realizing you were kind of taking a different route, were there any regrets in, in that that one moment? I mean, later on, you realize, you know, the contract got awarded elsewhere and you might have ended on in a different path. But in that one moment when you stepped onto Harvard's campus, what were you saying to yourself? It was a really remarkable kind of transition, right? Because like I had been the president of the Michigan Alumni Club in LA and I knew everyone. I was a little bit of a big fish in a, in a little kind of like Michigan pond in, in LA. And I went to HBS, I didn't know anyone, like not one person. And you realize like there's a lot of these people that have gone to elementary school together in New York City and they've gone to the same boarding schools and they've gone to college together. And you you get there and you're like, wow, <laughs> I have no idea what makes the world tick. But what really brought that point home was actually not arriving on campus. We were hosting the HBS Tech Conference, and I was like still kind of really committed to making space relevant. It was called Cyberposium, the HBS Tech Conference that year. And I was like, I'll pull together this amazing panel on space. And so it had like really kind of great speakers. Uh, one of Mitt Romney's sons who was like in space policy, an astronaut who taught at MIT, Mm-hmm. George Whitesides, who went on to run Virgin Galactic. And mm-hmm. the panel went head to head against a panel on mobile devices. And there were like 900 people. So this was 2006. There were like 900 people at the mobile device panel and like 10 at my panel. <laughs> and I was that was when I was like, 
okay, space, not a national priority, especially not right now. So it kind of forced me to really rethink like what I was going to do in the short term, right? Like you're so indoctrinated in this view that like everyone cares and you're like, you realize that like space is really amazing and, and still kind of obviously the final frontier. And and now there are starting, like we're starting to see emergent business cases, but at the time there wasn't really any inertia behind pursuing any of those initiatives. This was kind of SpaceX hadn't had its launches yet. So for me, it was really eye-opening. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go learn what like what people care about and like what really moves the world. And so I used the opportunity at Harvard to kind of like go and explore a bunch of different arenas. Yeah, and I, and I want to go into some of the areas of which you went, you know, Rolls-Royce and some other places. But I guess what compels you you think industries to move towards something that is a level of, of national security, so to speak, in your words, right? What moves people from, you know, focusing on, you know, data and technology, there's 20 people or, you, you know, there's a bunch of people on that side to only a couple of people on your side to getting them all to move to your side of the table. What do you think allows people or what do you think has to happen in order for people to move that direction? When I was in college, I wrote this paper about the space race and, you know, why the U.S. won the space race, right? And the U.S. won the space race, not for any kind of like grand reason that it wanted to go and redefine space, but it was a race, right? There was a sense of competition. There was like an existential threat to American superiority at a global level if the Soviet Union at the time won that race, right? And I think Mm. there's something here about like either there needs to be a big economic carrot at the end or like the technology has to be fundamentally transformative, right? Like mobile devices circa 2007 was like the thing. Well, the iPhone came out in 2007. The iPhone came came out out in 2007, 2007, right? right? So this was like the news about the iPhone was starting to like take, right? And the power to transform and improve connectivity for people globally was such a huge economic carrot that like clearly everyone was interested, right? And space, it's really expensive. It's $10,000 a kilogram to get a kilogram of, you know, anything to space, right? It's expensive. It requires enormous amounts of capital. And more importantly, it moves slow. So I just told you that the program I worked on in 2002 hasn't launched yet, right? It's 2022. It's great. In 2004, it's 2022. Hey, look, it it takes time for things to materialize. It takes time for things to develop. I mean, it does. So that program I'll be a little bit cynical about because it's like, it's got the same technology, like it's got a capsule, it's got a service module, and it's got a launch abort system, which is exactly what Apollo had. It almost had, that when it was originally designed, the same outer mold line as Apollo with the service module had solar panels, and that was it. And you're like, you couldn't come up with anything else. <laughs> and then the, if you look at the rocket, right, the rocket is taking the technology that had the space shuttle, so the external tank technology, putting more stages together and then adding the solids. And it's, it's not revolutionary in any way, right? Mm. The avionics are better, but like Blue Origin, what Blue Origin and SpaceX have done, right? Like their capsules are like really cool and really sophisticated. No one's really flying them. It's the pace, right? It's the pace at which these things move. That's like, you lose a lot of people along the way if it takes 20 years to launch something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I suppose it, it takes maybe a meteor staring you know, at at the face of the earth and us needing to do something to disrupt the path of the meteor to bring it to like national attention. But I'd imagine in some people's minds, that's a a little bit removed from your daily life, right? Like, how do I have control over that? Well, and it's the existential threat, right? Like, so in 
the 60s, okay, we launched Alan Shepard, the first American to space in 1961. Eight years later, we were standing on the moon. This is 20, this is 18 years later. And we're going to send some like, you know, robots to space, like cool, right? Uh, to the moon in in this, on this vehicle that we've spent 20 years and 20 years in 5X the billions of dollars that we'd originally planned. So for me, I think also like, I love things that move at pace, which is why like I don't do space anymore. I do aviation because aviation is real. It's current. It's still the same underlying technology. Like I love things that fly. I love things like space is kind of fun to noodle on still, but like the use cases for space are limited, but like aviation moves at pace, right? Like I want to launch LAX this Thanksgiving. We put the capacity on, we sell some seats, we move passengers and we get their real-time feedback. Like that, I love things that move at pace. And so for me, especially like if you kind of then take the kind of post-Harvard trajectory, it's really been about aviation and not about space. But you had some places that you you stopped along the way, right? Being at Rolls-Royce and working at TaskRabbit, you know, there, there were some steps along the way that might've formulated your belief that you need to go into the world of aviation and not go back into the world of aerospace. Yeah. So after HBS, I went and I was like a little bit sad that nobody cared about space. So I went and I did consulting for a couple of years. I was at Bain in London through the recessionary downturn, which was a tough time for that industry as a whole. So I spent a couple of years there. And then I went to Rolls-Royce where I did M&A in the defense business. So it was still jet engines, right? Rolls-Royce aerospace. We make turbines, like large gas turbines primarily for commercial aerospace. And then they have a big military business that does military jet engines. And so I was running M&A on the jet engine side. So it was still like, you still have to know how a jet engine works, right? Which is the Mm. aerospace link there. And so I spent three years at Rolls-Royce and then I went to a tier three, tier four aerospace supplier called Ultra Electronics. And then I was there and I was like, but again, this is about the pace, right? So development cycles in aviation are long, right? So like a new, like Pratt & Whitney just put out a new gas turbine engine. It's called the geared turbofan. That is 15 years in development and billions of dollars of investment, right? The pace at which these things move is really slow. Like the urban air mobility, we'll talk about that in a second, is like trying to accelerate and shrink the time that it takes to bring a new product to market. But a lot of this is like, we are a very risk averse culture, culturally, globally, right? It is no longer acceptable to build 50 varieties of aircraft and let barnstormers go fly them. Things have to be safe out the door. And so when when the requirement is for things to be safe, the development cycles are slow. So the time at Rolls-Royce, like the pace at which things moved was slow. At Ultra, equally, the pace was slow. So the task rabbit move was a really interesting one. I was like, I got to a point where I'd been kind of out of business school. So I'd had this job pre-business school that I loved, right? Working on the space program. And it was early. So it was things were moving fast. It was two years from the kind of announcement to the to the contract award. And then I was like at Rolls-Royce and Ultra where things were moving quite slowly. And so I was like, I want to go work somewhere that, that's got this like consumer lens, right? Because consumer, this is my kind of like life purpose now is like the intersection of aviation and consumer, right? Like I love hmm. that intersection, like where aviation meets consumer and has the pace is the thing that I love, which is why I run the airline. But I went and I wanted to do something in, on the consumer side. And I really thought TaskRabbit had a remarkable vision and a really cool um, young female CEO. And I wanted to work at that company. They took a chance on me because I'd been selling jet engines and they let me become their European GM, which is just astonishing. <laughs> I think there's like, there's, the, you know, that's a, it's a brave leap. I always thank them for that opportunity. 
And I learned a lot about how do you build a consumer business, right? I, I had known nothing about product or marketing or development or any of these things. I just knew that I wanted to work at this company that I thought sounded really awesome. So I managed to kind of convince them and we launched the UK. We got it up and running and we managed to turn it almost profitable before I left kind of in that, in that two-year window. And so it was a really, that was probably the most educational experience I've ever had. It's like, I wanted to do something totally different in consumer and I, and that moved at pace. And so that was, that was really cool. And then after that, I discovered that Airbus was sent, I'd been in London for almost eight years at that point. And then I discovered Airbus was setting up an incubator here in Silicon Valley. And so I reached out and I was like, Hey, what are you guys up to? And I talked to the CEO and we had two 30 minute conversations. He's like, can you move to San Jose? I was like, sure. So my husband and I packed up our life and like moved to downtown San Jose from London, which was perhaps not the wisest decision, but we moved, we moved to, to California. And the first thing the CEO, Paul Aramenko, who now runs Universal Hydrogen said was, we want you to make helicopters accessible and affordable on demand. I was like, that's crazy, but we'll try. But it kind of used all of the things that I knew about, right? Like I knew about helicopters, mm. done at Rolls-Royce, we did small engines. I knew about helicopter engines. I knew about the OEMs. I knew how much they cost. And I'd done all these things. And then I'd launched a consumer business. And so I found the right folks. And we built, we did a partnership with Uber in Sao Paulo when I first joined in 2016. And we launched a helicopter network with Uber for like a 30-day stint. And the demand was insane. Like the demand was like through the roof. And we're like, okay, maybe this is really a thing. And so we took it back. And Airbus is like, yeah, you know, we're we're really committed to trying this out. Let's go build a business. And we, our timing was insane. So we launched, we launched Voom. We incorporated it kind of in the fall of 2016. And right at that moment, Uber put out the Uber Elevate memo, which launched an entire industry, right? It really kind of turbocharged the electric VTOL industry and space, this urban air, air transportation space. And our timing was awesome. We were like running this network with helicopters. So we were building a network for urban mobility using space, using the, the airspace. The Pathfinders podcast is presented to you by Ansarata. Ansarata is the modern deal and virtual data room technology designed to make M&A, capital raising, divestments, restructures, and IPOs as simple as possible. Ansarata has just launched Freemium with the world's first online data room quote. Now you can get a free data room and quote in just three clicks and just 15 seconds. There's no need to wait. Get your room open straight away, no matter what stage you're at. Deal marketing, deal preparation, or due diligence. And here's the best bit. Usage fees only start when the deal goes live. All the top M&A firms and investment banks are jumping on it. That's because there is no risk, just reward. Pretty cool, right? Check it out at ensorata.com slash quote. You know I like a winning team, so say it with me. Ensorata.com for your next winning outcome. As I think about it, I'm, I'm, I'm always thinking about going from city to city and proximity and how do I get there much more quickly and how do I get there more efficiently? And it's, you know, right now it's just, you're just going to the airport, you're going to jump on an airplane, you're just going to fly, whether you're going to go from Detroit to, uh, to New York, New York down to DC, if you could just go from outside of your backyard you know, take that, that EV tall and just go to Virginia and come right back. It makes things so much more efficient. So I remember reading about the launch that you participated in. And I think 
still, it's going to take some time to develop to your point, right? And one of the things we talk about on the Pathfinders is your deal-making mindset. And you alluded to a, a little bit about the lessons that you learn at Rolls-Royce, TaskRabbit, you know, as you move from different industries. Where does your deal-making mindset come from? You know, what do you think are some of the key features and what we would say is like benefits of operating in this frame of, of mind? Because, you know, to go from fast cars and football to to jet engines and eVTOLs, although they might be in similar frame of references, you know, you might have sort of taken the a, a different approach to it and shaping your deal-making mindset. Yeah, it's funny because I've never really thought of it as a deal-making mindset. I, I have a kind of periodic view of my life. So I like to, I typically view my life in 18-month intervals, right? And I always ask myself the question, and this has been something that's like, like if I trace back to my very first job, typically my jobs have either been 18 months or three years. And this is the first time that I'm like at three and a half years, right? I think what is really characteristic about me is that I have a pretty high risk tolerance. And I think some of that is because Michigan, right, gave me a great foundation. And HBS also gave me the foundation to know that like, I am like always hireable. Someone somewhere is going to hire me to do something, right? So like the prospect that I'm going to be unemployed is low, right? So I've got this like risk tolerance where I'm like willing to make a change. So I look at my life in like 18 month intervals and I'm like, can I imagine doing what I'm going to do for the next 18 months? Can I imagine working Mm -hmm. on the F-18 for the next 18 months? I'm like, yep, that's going to tell me whether or not I like engineering. Then I'm like, ooh, I am not cut out to be a very technical engineer. Let me go work in business development and systems engineering on the space program. I was like, boss is an astronaut, super cool, love it, super cool, super into it. 18 months in, I'm like, but the program's not sustainable the way it's kind of currently set up. So I'm like, okay, what? what would allow me to kind of expand. And so I, you know, went to business school and then after business school, I was like, all right, 18 months in consulting in a post kind of in a recessionary world, not super fun. Going to bail, going to go to Rolls Royce, spent three years at Rolls Royce, went to ultra, was there for less than a year, totally not a cultural fit, went to TaskRabbit. I was there 18 months and I was like, this is awesome. I love it. I love building a consumer brand, but I was spending my weekends, you know, helping like organizing gardeners for grannies. And I was like, this is really awesome, but I love airplanes. That's the, my kind of great flaw in life is I love airplanes and thinking about airplanes and like thinking about next generation propulsion technology. Like that's my jam. So I am very unlikely to work outside of the aerospace kind of aerospace funding environment again, because I now know that like, if I leave, I'll come back because I just love it, right? Mm. That's the thing. That's the reality. And there's so much opportunity in the in the aerospace sector. So, but again, I was there, you know, 18 months at Airbus. I was there three years. And then kind of in the, I, I get like an itch, right? So kind of like at the 30-month mark, I'm like, this business boom is never going to move the needle for Airbus, right? In order to move the needle for Airbus, you need to have a clear path to billions of dollars in revenue. The entire Mm -hmm. global installed fleet of helicopters is like 32,000 helicopters. Even if you had every single helicopter in the world, as an asset light network player, you're never going to do billions of dollars in revenue. So I was like, this is not going to matter. So I quit. And that's the thing is like, I, I quit things. Like if, if it is not right, quit, like quit early, quit often until you find that thing that is like really going to work. Right. And so I left Airbus in October, 2018. And then 
I was just kind of hanging out. And then in March of 2019, I, I met the folks at Expa, which is, which is the incubator that started Arrow. And we had this like meeting of the minds where the co-founder of Uber is a guy called Garrett Camp. And he's a visionary. He loves to solve problems that he has. And he's very clear about market opportunities that other people might not see. That's sort of how he got to where he is, right? And he was like, there is an enormous opportunity between commercial first and business and private air travel that is underserved. You have to realize that this is a radical hypothesis if you come from the industry, right? For the last 30 years in aviation, there's only been one way to make money, super low cost, Ryanair style, new airplanes, really high density, like go serve the bottom of the market. And Garrett's like, no, like the premium sector is underserved. And I was like, Mm -hmm. that's a really interesting thesis, but you have to make money flying airplanes. And so we kind of got talking and I love building things. Like I love starting things from scratch and like taking the kernel of an idea and bringing it to life. And so we got started and we ran some trials and kind of experimented. And then now, you know, three years later, three and a half years later, this is a real business with real airplanes and real operating assets. And we're, you know, in two countries, we operate out of the UK and operate out of the US and we've flown thousands of passengers to date. And it's like, it's an airline. Right? We built, we built an airline from scratch out of thin air. And so that, that for me is exciting. And so, you know, I still ask myself this question, the 18 month question. And this is the first time I've ever said, yeah, I want to see this all the way through because this is something that works. We have clear product market fit. It moves really fast. It's at its core, it's aviation, right? It's like, I still get to talk about jet engines and supplemental type certificates and the stuff that I like to think about, like next generation propulsion technology, but it moves really fast, right? Cause like our customers are real people and they have like specific opinions about like, I get a lot of text messages like, Hey, I just got a 12 pound golden doodle. Can I fly it to Cabo next Thursday? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you can bring your yeah. fly the, the golden doodle. The golden doodle be just completely fine on our, our aircraft. It'll be fine. It'll be fine on arrow. And uh, so that's that's exciting. So there's like a real kind of feedback cycle. So what was the transition like in arrow, especially going through with the pandemic? Yeah, that was crazy. We launched an airline into the pandemic. So we started in 2019 with one route, Ibiza Mykonos. That's again a route that no data set in the entire world will tell you is a good idea, but we've run it profitably now. Well, especially think because so many people saw Greece as not really having a great economy at that time either. Yeah. And like who who goes on holiday in Spain and Greece at the same time? It turns out a huge <laughs> traveling populace and you only need to get like five of them. And then they all talk about the service. And it's like, it's pretty great. So we ran a, a, a shuttle between Ibiza and Mykonos the first summer kind of as an MVP product. And so we've really taken kind of a tech approach to this building this airline. So we went out and we launched Ibiza Mykonos that first summer. And then September 2019, we're buying our first three aircraft from Embraer. And then that process starts to go, right? And then February, I went to Europe and I came back and I thought I had what was a cold, which is now clearly was COVID. And then I remember it so vividly. I remember March 14th, like the PGA players walked off the course and they they stopped the Lakers game in the first quarter. And I was like, oh my God, this is real, right? That was like the moment when you're like, Oh, what I remember. What am I going to do with my three airplanes when they come out of service? But we were really lucky. We didn't have lots of fixed infrastructure. And, you know, some of the airlines like Cathay Pacific is still not back to full strength, right? And they're hemorrhaging mm. cash because they have so much infrastructure and inventory and people everywhere. And we were very lucky. We were very early. And so while it was disruptive, it wasn't that disruptive, right? So we still, we got delivery of our first airplane in June of 2020. 
And then there was like a 12-week window when borders were open in Europe. So we took the airplane to Europe. We ran flights, London, Ibiza, London, Nice, Ibiza, Mykonos. And we were able to operate and demonstrate that we had tons of demand. And like normally airlines put their inventory out for sale for like 12 months. We would, we'd have like four weeks of lead time before we'd like launch these routes. But it was cool because we were able to build like Arrow is a viral-ish brand and it's a real kind of brand that spreads kind of person to person. And we were able to validate that we had demand for the product. But then in Europe, all the borders shut. So we brought the service back to the U.S., And we finally launched as an evergreen business in February 2021, by which point vaccines were coming out and then people were ready, you know, because there was a ton of pent up demand. And then I think this summer, this summer you saw the pent up demand, right? Like there were people that were starting to fly in the 2021 timeframe, but now is when people are really ready to go places. Mm. I'm just curious in terms of how does Arrow really change the way we fly? Right. So you, you mentioned before low cost carriers. That's the only way you can is essentially create any revenue. Ryanair, some of these other airlines, which I'm a Delta guy. So I'm, I'm flying all the time, you know, and I, I think one of the best, you know, traditional commercial airlines. But so how do you kind of take Arrow and think about it or not think about it in terms of a similar category to some of the higher cost carriers like Delta Airlines and, and others that are out there? Yeah. So the problem that we're trying to solve at Arrow, right, is like even the best commercial carriers, the first and business class product is somewhat commoditized because you still have to go to whatever. I assume you live near BWI or Dulles. Like you go, you still have to go to the airport to get there early, to take your shoes off, you have to go through security. And it's still this experience that's like really clunky and kind of aggravating, right? Like your air travel experience is something to be suffered through. And at Arrow, we we don't believe that has to be the case, right? Mm-hmm. Today, there is a way to avoid that hassle, but it's available only to the top 0.1% of people, right? And that's flying private. You fly private, you show up, maybe you go through security and you come out the other side and you like walk up to your airplane, you board and you can get to the airport 15 minutes before and it's fine. And it's like the time savings of that and the just the kind of like balleriness of that, right, is like a really remarkable experience. And we think that there is something, there's a hybrid opportunity where you can give some of that experience. So maybe 80% of that experience for 20% of the cost of that experience. So that's, that's the product offering and that's the niche we're going after. And so the experience is just radically better, right? We treat every person that flies Arrow as a human. We really focus on like, so we know, for example, we have a lady that flies with us that only drinks Fiji water. So every time she flies, we serve this lady Fiji water. We know what people's preferences are. And, and we've been really lucky that we've, we've had some really kind of exciting tastemakers fly with us and we, we know what their preferences are. And so we're, you know, we're really able to build a brand mm. that is human centered, right? And Arrow, like- what, Wait, wait, what, is, what does that mean, human centered? Because you, you brought that up a couple of seconds ago. You're like, we treat you like a human. I mean, does it mean that like going through the airport, I'm not treated like a human, I'm treated like- like cattle. Just uh, another, another number that's processing through security and taking my shoes off and taking my computers out and moving my bag through and just getting screened. I mean, 100%. Like, how does that brand experience translate? This summer I flew, I flew to Frankfurt on a Monday on Lufthansa and I was, I arrived at Heathrow and it was like two and a half hours to check the bag. And then it was like two hours through security and then another 45 minutes through passport control. I, 
pulled every card I had to try and make that flight, right? Because I was only there. I didn't expect it to be like that. And I was only, it was like May and I, and the chaos wasn't quite public yet. And it's just such a dehumanizing experience and the stress mm. is just like, whereas at Arrow, like this is about seamlessness. It's about really kind of, it's, it's like when you, when you rock up to a place where you're well-known and they know you and they know your preferences and they treat you like a person, they recognize the human in you and the thing that you are, the fact that you're, you know, you're a person that's going to take this flight and, you know, with preferences, like maybe you have a dog and we know your dog's name and we know the dog's preferences. Like we just, we make the experience really come to life. And so for like premium customers, right? Like that's, that's a market opportunity and it's a product that we're really excited about where we had amazing traction this summer. So we're really, really excited about it. And like, for me, as like the technical nerd, I love airplanes, right? The reality is that like the state of battery technology, the state of hydrogen technology is such that the first airplanes that come out are going to be small and we're going to be ideally positioned, right? They're going to be small and they're going to be expensive because any new development program, even a retrofit program is pretty expensive. And so we're going to be optimally positioned because we have customers with much higher willingness to pay to launch some of these new platforms, right? To be a launch customer for a 15 seat electric airplane. That's kind of right in our sweet spot. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the product is interesting. So, you know, you're the CEO of Aero. You're also on the advisory board of Volocopter, GmbH, you know, which is changing the world of aviation with the all electric air taxi. What advantages do air taxis provide in the mobility sector, right? You know, you're talking about airplanes, but what about air taxis? Yeah, I think this comes back to like the full spectrum of the multimodal. I know you, I was listening to your interview about multimodal transportation. So if you think about the whole journey, right, like you want to go from your house to LA, right? You have to get in the car, drive to the airport, fly, right? But so like airplanes are kind of optimal for... 500 nautical miles, right? Because by the time you get to the airport, that's the kind of distance at which it makes sense. Kind of shorter than that, trains are good, but the air is- Or you can just drive. Or you could just drive, right? But the air is completely untouched. And in some places, Sao Paulo, right, where I launched Boom originally, Jakarta, Manila, Lagos, the traffic is so prohibitive that driving is not Mm. really a viable option, Right. There was a really interesting article about the the prime minister of Indonesia had was like giving a speech at some military memorial and got out and walked three kilometers because he was chock-a-blocked, right? And so like the whole premise behind electric VTOL and urban air mobility was that the urban airspace is underutilized. Like there's hardly any air traffic in the urban airspace. And part of that is because helicopters are kind of dirty and inefficient. But imagine if you had a technology that could be clean and quiet, right? So noise pollution is a big part of this, but kind of mm-hmm. clean and quiet and kind of short haul, right? So this is where like the Volocopter technology is perfect, right? Like for an urban commute, it's quiet, it's electric. You're not going to get the same pushback as if you had 50 helicopters in, a, in an urban space. So in a place like Sao Paulo, where there's 400 helipads, and there's like corners where there's helipads on each corner. Like you could imagine like using the airspace in a different way. You just need a better technology. And so that's the thesis. So, so the thesis behind urban air mobility is, you know, pre-COVID, the world was rapidly urbanizing. There was this like next decade was supposed to be the like greatest period of urban migration in human history. Post-COVID, that's not necessarily true anymore. And I think people are still mm-hmm. trying to figure out what happens to cities. But pre-COVID, like the idea was like, okay, 
the cities are being stretched to the limits of their infrastructure, right? Like Mexico City in the last 20 years has had enormous influx of migrants moving from different places. And so urban air mobility or putting the urban sky into the equation with clean aircraft is a way to like move more people at scale. Do you think this is going to be for everybody? Because I'm thinking right now, you know, I, I tried to figure out, okay, if I wanted to go from D.C. to New York on a helicopter, how much would that cost? Eh, you know, I, I, I want to go private from Detroit uh, down to Austin, Texas. How much is that going to cost, right? These prices are astronomical. And, you know, to the point of what you're talking about with Aero, this notion of how do you mix between sort of like public transportation and private transportation makes a lot of sense. But it's still a little bit more of those that can and pay for it, right? So how do you democratize it? How do you make it for everybody instead of just being a luxury commodity? Or is that like, is that the the potential growth in the industry? So we ran a lot of analysis about like, what does the operating cost of the vehicle have to be in order for urban air mobility to be a mass transit product? And the answer is something like $6 a minute, because that is the cost at which it is comparable with a train, Right. But this is one of the big kind of sources of pushback. In order to really have urban air mobility at scale, we need radically better battery technology, right? So Mm. today's best-in-class batteries are about 240 watt-hours a kilogram. And they're perfect if you have a Tesla that doesn't need to lift the weight of its battery off the ground. Like in aviation, weight is everything, right? And so really to have at least regional-scale aircraft, right, we need batteries to get to like 800 to 1,000 watt-hours a kilogram. And the problem is that the curve, so lithium ion batteries are getting better. It was at 6% a year. Now it's like 3% a year. There's got to be some sort of fundamentally different chemistry because like that, like lithium is the lightest metal in the world, right? That's why it is the kind of core metal of a battery. But we have to have radically new chemistry and technology in order to like really have this at scale. I think we will have like the start of urban mobility, right? Like the volocopters and the jobies and will kind of come into play but for it to really be scale where you're moving train volumes of people, you need bigger aircraft and lighter batteries. So that's the timeline. As you see the next five to 10 years and you're layering on top your 18 months to three years with Arrow, how do you look at even looking at batteries? How do you look at the future of air mobility and where Arrow is going to be and where you're going to be? So before any of my board directors freak out if they listen to this, I'm thinking about Aero. I'm committed to Aero, like through the IPO or the sale or or wherever we end up. I really genuinely believe we have a we have product market fit and the and just like now we just need to go scale, right? Like I'm I'm really excited about it. And the challenge is like the requirements on you as a leader change as the company evolves, right? And I've not I haven't seen anything through to that stage. And so I'm excited to see and learn and kind of like evolve with the business as it grows. So that's that's that. But so on air mobility, right? So there's a ton of new, like the last five years have been super exciting in aerospace, right? Like catalyzed by Uber Elevate, but like really kind of brought together by all these different startups in the electric VTOL space and all this capital that's kind of gone into the space. I think like we're going to see, it's it, it's similar to the 1950s when there were all these different kind of configurations of aircraft. We're going to see a lot of different configurations of like light electric airplanes, but then we have to see, we have to kind of start to see this like radically better technology kind of come into play. Mm. 
And I think urban air mobility is going to happen at a small scale where it'll be a premium product for folks in the short term. But over the long term, as batteries get better, as vehicles get bigger, as the technology kind of catches up to our ambitions, I think we will be, you'll start to see the urban sky play a bigger part in the, in the transportation equation. Do you think companies like yours and your understanding of where the future of mobility needs to go? I like how you answered the question. Do you think you all, through your experience and the way that you all look at, you know, treating the customer and their overall experience, do you think that there's possibilities where you could even go into the world of battery technology based upon what you've seen within the market? In other words, Amazon started off as a bookstore. Now all of a sudden, you know, they have the largest web services product and they're also in Thursday night football, right? The, the <laughs> leader in commerce distribution, right? So how does air mobility, you know, you go through this J curve, air mobility, you start to become incredibly profitable. You have everybody on your platform. You treat people like humans and then you want to make the experience even that much better. How do you move the business or how do you contemplate the business in the future knowing where it's going? Yeah. So I think Arrow, like the opportunity for Arrow, right, is like we could radically rethink like how passengers travel, right? And so I can imagine Arrow being like a travel brand that is like, you know, like great hotels, like that kind of unlocking different pieces of the passenger wallet in the travel space. But building a new vehicle is a radically different value proposition, right? So I sit on the board of a helicopter and I have a keen appreciation for how hard it is to like bring a vehicle to market. I think Arrow, Arrow will always be an operator. We're always going to be a consumer facing business that provides services. It is not beyond the realm of the possible to imagine that we're going to buy electric airplanes, right? Or, mm. or offer a mm -hmm. service, or maybe we offer short haul. Maybe we offer Dahani's local parking structure to BWI commute, right? And maybe that's maybe like, maybe we have a fleet of smaller, of like, small electric VTOL aircraft that we use to transport people to the airport for their longer flight. It is, that is all within the realm of the possible where Aero, the company is not going to ever produce vehicles hmm. and nor should it. Well, well, the future, we don't know because that's why it's called the future. But <laughs> I look forward to being able to fly on Aero, whether I'm going to Ibiza or whether I'm going, you know, just on, on the West Coast, hopefully you can bring something to the East Coast. And maybe there's a way that you can incorporate things with a little bit more of Michigan football. That'd be fantastic. But as we kind of come to a close, and I really appreciate so much of your, your commentary and your, and your thoughts, because I think there's so many different takeaways. We always like to end the podcast by asking guests about, you know, meals and deals, right? And, you know, so tell, tell me a story or tell us a story your favorite deal and maybe a, a celebratory meal that, that you've had? A celebratory meal. Okay. So my favorite celebratory meal is probably pizza from Cottage Inn. I got to just say that. Like, so if I were ever to have a big shout out to meal, Ann Arbor, big shout out to Ann Arbor. When I ran the Michigan <laughs> club in LA, we used to fly in half baked Cottage Inn pizzas and we would, we would do it on a football Saturday, It'd be 9am Pacific time. And we would do a taste of Ann Arbor with like 300 people and we'd have flown in pizza and stoochies and all that stuff. So that's, that's how I like to celebrate. But my favorite deal. So arrow was truly a concept that we created, right? I like look back at the April, 2019 board deck and I was like, Oh my God, this, we envisioned this thing. And I think for me, my favorite deal was closing our series a, because it was like external validation that other people think that the idea you've got is good. And that satisfaction 
is something that I will always remember. And still for me, like getting other people excited about my idea is really exciting. So I think that's, that's probably my favorite ever deal. Well, I look forward to going to a Michigan game with you and having some cottage and pizza after we celebrate our win. And, you know, (laughs) hopefully we're going to the game on Arrow. I look forward to that. That is actually, you know what? I should offer Arrow, Arrow shuttles from New York and New York and DC to uh, to Ann Arbor. Not a bad idea. You heard it right here on the Pathfinders. (laughs) Almost coming up with new ideas. Um, and, and new ways to think about growing Arrow. And I, and I can't wait to be a customer. Uma, thank you so much for being on the Pathfinders and being a guest of ours today. So thank you. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. A special thanks again to Uma Supermadian for being with us today. It's really amazing to hear about the work she's doing to make the aviation industry accessible to all and unlock the urban sky. If you're enjoying The Pathfinders, please make sure to leave a review so more people can find the show. Until next time, I'm Dahani Jones, and this has been The Pathfinders, presented by Ansarada. <laughs>